I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, perhaps right now, the idea of moving to a different country to find work is furthest from anyone's mind. But when times are good in richer countries, people don't want to do the difficult jobs, the ones where you have to work hard and get paid less. We leave that for the migrants who either come over here to live or come over for a season. Aside from sounding a little exploitative, is it actually good for the economy to have that happen or not? Does it make the economy more productive or is the preponderance of low-paid workers actually slowing down consumption? We'll look at all of that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. So one of the, the, the reasons, Steve, uh, given for Brexit was to take back control of our borders. And of course, that has been uh, that line has been a vote winner for lots of governments. You know, John Howard used it in Australia back uh, 20 years ago when he said, he, we are going to decide who comes to this country and what circumstances in which they come. Uh, and since then, asylum seekers have quickly become illegal immigrants just about everywhere. The, the catch cry for the last UK election was also taking back control. And uh, migrants are, of course, we know, responsible for all crime in this country and everywhere else. They live on the dole. They go to the top of the queue for social housing. We see that all over social media. And leaving the EU was going to solve all of that because we'd have control of our borders in the UK, except for the, the one with Ireland, of course, which we, uh, we we want to control that border without actually having a border, which is a bit of a chink in the argument there. Uh, but what do you reckon uh, would happen if we stopped all migration. If if the people who are against migration got their way and you just said, right, uh, if you're not in this country already, you're not coming in. What happens? Well, actually, that's a different angle to the one I thought would be starting off on, which is the um, economic obsession with free movement of labour and capital. And um, well, we'll tackle that too. We'll, we'll, we'll tackle that. Yeah. But if you, if you look at the the migrant thing, let's put this in context. I think there's absolutely no chance of that being successful because a major driver of migration right now is climate change. And I don't know if you. You probably saw the reports that uh, somewhere in Iraq cracked a temperature of something, I think it was 52.8 degrees Celsius. And that uh, somebody pointed mm. out this is a couple of degrees below the temperature they reckon we should cook food at to kill coronavirus. And that's the temperature people are supposed to live in. That, of course, is temperature recorded in the shade, uh, not in the actual direct sunlight, which would be yeah. even higher again. Uh, that's meaning that major parts of the world are going to be unlivable. And it really doesn't matter what you tell people. They're going to be leaving where they are. Uh, the migration as, as asylum seekers, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, uh, maybe as climate asylum seekers. Yeah. But if, if, but if we, uh, uh, that aside, mm-hmm. and I think that's a discussion for another day. If we just said, uh, uh, you know, and well, let's treat asylum seekers and maybe slightly mm-hmm. separately. But if we just said, if you want, if you want to, if you want to move here for work, we're not going to let you. We, we are. We're going to be self sufficient. Is it realistic for a country to think like that? Uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to one little uh, twist about this and we'll, we'll get to the question whether it's 
realistic or not on, on the road. And, and that is that that's actually, if, if you actually said you can't move labour between countries and you topped it up with a second saying you can't move capital between countries, you'd actually reach the preconditions for economic theory to say free trade increases everybody's welfare. Because that's what mainstream economics assumes in its models, uh, that the labour and capital are completely immobile between countries while goods are completely immobile. And the reason they make that assumption is that uh, with that assumption, you have any increase in economic activity due to exports uh, accruing to the what they call factors of production in that economy. And therefore, you can say that the welfare benefits of trade accrue to local capital and local labour. If you actually allow that labour and capital are mobile, and particularly uh, capital, and in terms of financial capital is mobile between countries, uh, so the ownership of resources moves, but also labour moves around immensely, you can no longer say that uh, free trade will benefit the factors of production, inverted commas, the workers and the capitalists in in that particular country. So ironically, uh, there's a reason that free, the economists, strictly speaking, if they wanted to make their, the real world look like their model, would say, let's let's ban movement right. of people between countries. Okay, because so, what you're saying is, that, okay, if you're going to have, I think, if you're going to have free trade, then you've got to assume that uh, that nothing else moves. So, uh, but but in reality. If you are selling something to another country and it's actually cheaper to make it in that country, then in reality, you're probably going to make it in that country. You're going to move your investment, your machinery into yeah. that country to operate yeah. there. Yeah, if, you go right, if you go right back and read Ricardo and Smith, uh, they both encountered arguments you know, 200 and something years ago uh, saying that if we, if we allow free movement of goods uh, between countries, then why won't capitalists in England move to, at that stage, I think they were using the Netherlands as an example for, at Smith's time and Portugal as an example in Ricardo's time. They'd move production to there, take advantage of cheaper labour and we'd be screwed. We wouldn't win any benefits at all. And the famous phrase about Smith uh, talking about uh, uh, motivation by the invisible hand, it wasn't the invisible hand of the market at all. It was the desire of English capitalists to remain in the English countryside. And therefore, that's the, the invisible hand would stop them moving across the borders of the Netherlands. Now, of course, that's completely not how it's been interpreted by mainstream economists. But what we what we have in reality is is huge movement of people between countries. And even though it obscures the case they make in favour of free trade, there is as much in favour of free movement of people as they are in favour of, yeah. of free trade. Well, you look at it one way. I mean, those people are the are the machines, aren't they? They're, and they, in some cases, they're very low-cost machines, at least yeah, the well, ones that we're importing are. Yeah, I mean, that's, if, you, if you look at why did, why did industrialisation occur, first of all, in Scotland rather than, for example, France, one of the reasons is that wages were higher in Scotland and it was yeah. therefore advantageous for uh, innovators in Scotland to develop t- uh, technology which replaced labour and that's a major reason for why you got the growth in Maybe advance. that wouldn't happen now though. Maybe in Scotland they would be importing a lot of people from Poland and that wouldn't have happened because and that's they'd be working. Yeah, mm. yeah. So that, that, this, that perspective that you actually get an innovation out of high labour costs and one of the reasons to allow labour moving between countries is to exploit the Advantages of low for the capitalists of low labour costs. Uh, that that puts me in a a rather different camp. A lot of uh, progressive economists are pro free movement of people because 
they sort of like, you know, you should be able to move where you want to, a sort of libertarian left attitude. I'm actually rather more sceptical. I think that a lot of this movement uh, is people being pushed out of places where they're being displaced and exploited where they arrive. I still well, think... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are just coming here for work, aren't they? I yeah, mean, it's, yeah. and maybe, but maybe that's part of that displacement. But a lot of them are coming here also with a job. I mean, that's the so last year, uh, six hundred and seventy-seven thousand people moved to the UK, and about a third of that was for a job, a third of it was to study, and the other third was a, a mix of reasons. But a chunk of that was accompanying someone who was either coming here to work or someone mm. who's coming here to study. So that says to me, two thirds of those people are contributing to society either because they're working and paying taxes or they're paying to study if you get rid of them then can we really say society is going to be better off yeah, well, it's, it's a mix both ways. I mean, I, I, I was obviously in one of the examples in 2014 of a yeah. Australian moving to the UK. And, uh, I mean, I, I know I've got some criticism of my capacities as a, as a manager, which I completely accept uh, at Kingston <laughs> University. But I think I contributed something to the UK. So I can see that as a positive. I actually took a, when I look at it, well, I didn't take a pay a way cut because I, uh, University of Western Sydney to retrench 30% of its humanities staff, including me. So I was going from no wage at all. Actually, I was being paid by Rupert Murdoch at the time uh, to, to a decent wage in the UK. So I benefited as well. Uh, but I, at the same time, I think of my cleaner when I was over in, in the UK. And uh, every every week I had a, a, a young Russian woman turning up and cleaning my apartment for this princely sum of seven pounds an hour. And I, for mm. the life of me, couldn't work out how anybody could survive on seven pounds. So I normally paid about ten. Um, but but there are a huge number of people who are living in from displaced conditions where they start, they move to the uh, to the west, and they're being exploited with you know, pathetic wages. And as you say, with wages that cheap, why 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 innovate a new vacuum cleaner uh, to to do the cleaning? Uh, mm. So that that that's one of or, my or worries about this. The Steve Keen actually tidies up his. Oh. Uh, is flat by himself. That is a good one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's quite extreme. But well, I mean, maybe this is. I can maybe go back to my past here, but well, let's let's leave that story out for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so maybe this is why Pretty Patel is saying that you know in the UK we don't want those low-paid workers. A lot of low-paid workers in the UK don't want low-paid workers either because they're 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 asking for less money. But Pretty Patel is is introducing this point system for the UK, like. like Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Like in Australia, uh, 70 points you've got to have. The first 50 basically says you've got to have a, uh, a, a job that's been approved by a sponsor, a, a job at, a, at an appropriate skill level as well, and you've got to have a reasonable standard of English. Mm. There's, you have to have those, and then you need another 20, for which many this, it's going to be the salary, unless they've got a PhD. And that means you've got to earn over £25,600. So basically, to come here now, from the end of the year, you're going to have to have a job, an approved job, and the, the job is going to pay more than £25,600. £25, 
that is going to cut out the vast majority of people moving to this country, I'd suggest. I think well, that's one of the problems. The Tories put forward rules like this without ever checking, it seems, to see what the wage rates are because I'm pretty certain a first-year school teacher gets less than 25000 yeah. in the and UK. And a nurse. And, and, and know, a nurse, the... yeah. Mm. Uh, so they, they, they put these things up and, and, and they then prevent the people they desperately need because they they don't pay anybody locally well enough to um, to get them to take on those low high-skilled and low-paid jobs. So they drag uh, drag migrants in to do it instead. Uh, and I, I look at that and think, don't you even read your own statistics? Um, mm. So, so like, I, I, I certainly have my problems with that. But th- this, this is... The, the, the fact that this happens... But is, there, is there a problem with taking those low-paid workers from overseas? I mean, that's the, that's the more fundamental question. If we, uh, you know, and it's very easy, isn't it, to say, well, yeah, you know, it has the thinking being, well, we don't need to train people to, to work in the NHS because uh, we can get people from overseas where perhaps they've already been trained or certainly they're going to take, take less money when they, when they come here. Um, so is it fine to do that? Or should we be saying, no, it's got to be done by British people? But then what if the British people don't? There's not enough of them want to do it because we're a wealthy country and would rather be doing something else that uh, doesn't get our hands so dirty. Well, in fact, I mean, that, that applies to, you know, to sanitation jobs and that sort of thing, definitely. But school teachers and nurses, it, it shows the extent to which uh, you know, working class wages are simply too low in the UK in particular. I mean, I, I, and right up to middle, middle executive level wages, they are the, the standard of living of people in in the UK is a lot lower uh, than the impression given by calling the UK a developed economy. Uh, I, I don't, as I said, I look at the cost of living in the UK and looked at the uh, the, the wages being earned by people like first year out teachers and nurses and think, how on earth can anybody afford to live on that? What sort of conditions are you going to have to be to tolerate uh, in terms of where, where you rent, what you buy for food and so on to be able to survive on those wages? And what mm. I, th- I think a large part of that is why uh, you know, UK, in the words UK and innovation uh, connected by a few government documents, but not by reality. And I've got a feeling that following this low wage uh, and bring cheap labour in when we can't get our locals to work for that rate as well is a large part of, of why the UK ceased being an innovationist society at least about 30 or 40 years ago. You might have to take those words back if we do find that the UK provides the cure for, for COVID-19, of course. But I mean, that is a small group of people working in a very specific field, isn't it? I, I, I take your point. So is the is the answer then to say, well, okay, we need to push up minimum wage? It, it, maybe uh, you do need to earn over £25,600 because that's what everyone is going to earn. That's sort of going to be the minimum wage in the UK. Uh, and, uh, and, and more people then would be prepared to do some of those jobs that we're, we're shipping in low-paid workers for. Pardon the background noise from the streets of, Ta- of Bangkok here in terms of the recording. Yeah, yeah I, I think if you think about how migration policy has been driven for the last 40 years, it really has been driven by the interests of, 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 uh, of, of employers and not by the interests mm. of workers. And uh, I can, if I, like I've, I've had a long history with following migration uh, developments in Australia because at school most of my friends were the new migrants. I had a lot of Aussie mates as well, but uh, I had Sri Lankan, Lebanese, Italian, Greek uh, friends at that stage. And uh, in terms of the, the benefits we got out of that 
period, uh, the society was immensely richer courtesy of that migration. Australian from being a very boring, uh, basically England with heat, uh, to, yep. an in, to an interesting part of the world with a fascinating culture. So that my, those migration wage, waves certainly helped. And when you look at what was driving the migration, it was partly the need the desire to industrialise the country. So you had the Snowy Mountain Scheme. You even had building cyclotrons to bring Sir Mark Oliphant back home. Uh, so a huge, uh, you know, to, to build, to construct a, a viable economy approach. But over time, it got turned to keep wages down. And and the, rather than family my family reunion being a major part of the migration policy, it became skilled labour. So all this stuff has been twisted uh, to benefit the employers and screw the workers. And I think the same thing is happening in the UK. If migration meant what it did when I was when I was in my teens, and that was letting people escape war torn Europe, trying to industrialise the economy, build an industrial uh, sector at the same time, then I'd be in favour of that migration, but what it's turned into, um, I, I would rather say let's 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 minimise it, let's cut it down, and and then get ready for the next stage. When we, we talked about a moment ago, we're going to get massive climate refugees coming away, and it's our own damn fault, and we should be letting them into the country. Right, but but people are coming. So it's a, the net migration to the UK is about uh, two hundred and fifty thousand. So uh, and and uh, of those, seventy six percent are coming with a job already in hand only mm. 52,000 are coming here each each year looking for work and that's basically halved since the uh, the EU referendum in 2016 because people know that they're not going to be able to stay here looking uh, looking for a job so most people are coming with a with a, a job in place but that I, I, and I have no idea how many of them are low skilled low paid jobs but you'd imagine uh, a, a significant proportion of that is is the case. So, with Pretty Patel's new rules, then you're going to see that that number decrease significantly. So, the only way is going to be that people have to accept that things are going to be more expensive because they are going to be done by people who are demanding higher wages, local people who are going to demand higher wages. Partially, but also that's what drives you to find ways to minimise your costs by improving your industrial processes. And, mm. uh, you know, like in terms of that, Japanese workers have seen their wages rise and the goods that they can afford, uh, you know, not necessarily get cheaper, uh, but more affordable within their wages and certainly higher quality. So the, the, the whole focus on, um, on, on cost of production and getting a minimum cost in, which is let's bring in cheap labour to make a, a higher profit and so on, that, that's, a, that's a allocating the resources you currently have at a point in time perspective. My perspective on how capitalism actually got to be as strong as it is was development over time. You started off with low cost, um, uh, you know, low quality technology. You improve both over time. Uh, it's, it's, it's development that gets you uh, in, improved standard of living, not specialisation. And this whole focus on let's move workers from one part of the world to the other uh, is frequently driven by the specialisation argument rather than the development argument. So, uh, it, if we look at fruit picking as an example, because there's a very seasonal uh, job, mm. the, uh, the the British Summer Fruits Association is now campaigning to get people to pick for Britain <laughs> uh, because there aren't enough pickers and packers. Uh, and they say, you know, it's, it's because of COVID, uh, but also because next year there's just going to be no overseas workers unless Pretty Patel changes their rules. I mean, 
so should we use itinerant workers to do jobs like this or should a country be self-sufficient and is this an example of where okay you need uh, you need mechanization because in britain there's over a quarter of a billion tons of soft fruits consumed each year mainly strawberries and raspberries and um this is a actually a, 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 a large proportion of actually the fruit that brits eat so it's actually something healthy so we don't want to lose that because it's actually something healthy going into britain's mouths rather than mcdonald's and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and overcooked sausages it would be a real problem if we if we, if we lost this this industry britain without strawberries in summer can can you imagine but can mm. you automate it or do well, we just have to pay a lot more for them well and it- you know, if you can, you can also improve your production processes. Like a, a trip to the Netherlands would benefit a lot of uh, English farmers uh, to see how it's effectively a form of industrialised farming, uh, farming in greenhouses and so on, with controlled mm. uh, water inputs, with no need for pesticide and uh, and less fertiliser as well, uh, has led to a higher level of output. Uh, so it, 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 you, you have you have to consider ways of improving your manufacturing processes, including in agriculture, especially in agriculture, given how wasteful and polluting a lot of agriculture is. So it's feasible to hang on to that industry uh, while not needing cheap labour to come and do the picking because you've changed your processes and taken the manufacturing inside, inside greenhouses and so on to do it. Um, I don't think you need. To, my, my overall, you can you can feel a very strong reluctance about bringing in cheap labour to do jobs that locals won't do, uh, which ends up undermining the wages locals do get for doing skilled jobs later on. Right, but if it can't be mechanised, what do you do? I mean, if you do you do the, just say, well, okay, we're we're going to hold our guns on this. We're still not going to let people in because we don't we don't want them to upset the uh, to, to skew the the, the 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 income the the average income in the country. Do you just say, well, okay? We won't eat strawberries then. <laughs> uh, again, I said take improve the manufacturing process for producing the strawberries in the first place. I, I, one mm. one little uh, incident in human history that a lot of people aren't aware of that was I was very conscious of uh, occurred when I was running the what's called the Ideas Centre of all things uh, for the Freedom from Hunger campaign in Australia, and it was when Lee Kuan Yew was uh, running Singapore. And uh, one day, one day, one day, I think virtually without warning, he said all wages are increased by minimum wage increased by 27%. Now, partly that was to drive cheap Malaysian labour out of out of uh, Singapore, but part of his attitude as was was as well. I want China and Singapore to be a high income, high skilled, uh, industrialised economy. And if you can't compete with the 27% wage rise, then I want you to shut down. And uh, fast forward 30, 40 years, Singapore's done rather well out of attitudes like that. And and that's put the emphasis upon high standard of living for the majority of the population. And the same thing applied back in Australia during the 50s and 60s. the, the twist to make it about uh, low-wage low, low, low costs and um, bring in cheap labour from overseas and then we benefit as consumers, I think that's giving to the sort of stagnant economy that the UK has turned into and Australia as well by, uh, by its attitudes. For that matter, America too, with relying upon cheap Mexican labour and not even giving them citizenship rights. Yeah, and therefore 
uh, th- them not having to apply minimum wages or or any sorts of regulations. They mm. just fly under the radar for uh, for whatever the uh, the employer can get away with. But Australia, of course, has mastered fly in, fly out workers as well to circumvent circumvent the uh, the restrictions on migration. You can get a special visa. In 2015, Fortescue Metals said they could save 33 million dollars a year if they converted 330 workers from being residential workers to first-in, first-out workers. So uh, 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 most people in Australia probably wouldn't want those jobs, but the, the, but they want mining companies to make big profits because they obviously want to share uh, in in those profits through their through their pension funds. So there wasn't a lot of opposition to this idea, was there? Well, I think the, the whole capacity of the labour movement to fight for a decent standard of living has been crucified in the last 30 or 40 years in general, and they're fighting on so many fronts, including mm-hmm. fighting on this whole idea of, what are they, they were 470 visas, weren't they? Uh, they yeah. Were called, yeah. Uh, and they weren't necessarily low-cost workers either. They were getting paid reasonably well. It's just the idea that if you've got uh, people who are working for a, for a while, because of course you know if you if you move to a mining area and the mi- it, it's only a, a, there for a few years perhaps before everything moves on, um, then you know you it, it's a transient life, and most Australians wouldn't want that transient life. And if you can get it from overseas, even if it's a well-paid job. You know, again, isn't the choice? Well, either you do that, or you, or, or you, you don't pursue, you know, that particular opportunity, unless you can mechanise it, which is your point. Yeah, and you get end up getting the, the the increase in the profit share goes to Gina Reinhardt, which doesn't make me particularly happy. Um, which is Australian. <laughs> it's staying yeah. in the country. It's. Uh, I wouldn't be so sure about that. But, but, mm. uh, but yeah. But so, uh, to me, the whole problem with migration is that it went from being something about helping people escape uh, social devastation, which was the Second World War in um, in Europe. Uh, which was a huge amount of migration from that. The Irish potato famine, for that matter, many time, many uh, decades prior, uh, the the, Viet, the collapse of Vietnam and uh, and Cambodia after the American war there went uh, went went belly up, uh, and you also had the extent to which people coming from other cultures enriched. The, the culture in which you yourself were living, um, mm. and then a lot of re, a lot of migration was about family reunion, and it, it's it's absolute halcyon period. Australia's migration rules included a bias towards Africans because Africans are underrepresented in the overall population mix of the country. Um, the social days of migration have gone, and it's all now about. Uh, getting cheap workers in, screwing your own local workers by using cheap workers against them. And in any way, that's returned us back to the the 19th century attitude that uh, Australia again represented. There's one of my favourite articles of all time was by a... um, Macquarie University academic with a wonderful name of Marie de Leprevanche and she went through looking at the politics of uh, opposition to migration in Australia over over a century and she found that the guess where the, where the most opposition to the next wave of migration came from? Uh, from the previous rate <laughs> the previous number of migrants it's always been okay. the case isn't it? So uh, and, and that, that actually led to you know, you know, a sort of a right wing shift in the overall society which we're seeing writ large on the global the global stage um, now, um, so you know, I'm I'm in favour of people moving, travelling, um, 
bringing their schools to different locations and so on, so long as not being screwed for the sake for the sake of doing it, and they have been screwed. What, yeah. And that's why I've got my reluctance uh, now. Which minimum wage could, of course, help with if uh, if it was applied to everybody. What what about seasonal jobs then? So I, I mentioned, uh, you know, the yeah. British summer fruit. So fruit picking obviously is is something that only happens in summer. Uh, if you if you had somebody who was just a fruit picker who lived here, what would they do? Would we be paying them for the uh, unemployment benefit for the rest of the year? In which case, in effect, you're saying, well, okay, we are actually subsidising the summer fruits uh, industry by, uh, yeah, by, by paying for half the year for their workers. Yeah, I mean, a whole lot of uh, things things like fruit picking is a, it's a classic example. It's one of those itinerant things that doesn't fit into blackboard economics of left left or right persuasion. Mm. Uh, you have a job which is only there for a couple of months. Um, you you certainly can't expect to be relying upon that your entire year. Um, it's just, it's 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 um, you know I actually I haven't done fruit picking. I've done a fair number of menial jobs over my student yeah, student days, but not that one. Uh, but back breaking as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing you would want people who are otherwise tourists to do, uh, earning some money while they're here being tourists, and that's an argument in favour of itinerant labour. Yeah. And I'll give you another example. So I've been in uh, in Newquay down in Cornwall, one of the few places in Britain where they actually have waves. And uh, there was a surf mm. instructor, in an, an English surf instructor. Can you imagine? And uh, so we were saying to him, so what do you do in the rest of the year? And he says, well, he's a ski instructor in the Alps in winter, uh, mm. but he's not sure whether he can he'll be able to do that. Uh, is he going to be able to go and work and uh, in the EU from from because from of COVID year? or because of the EU? No, change. because of because of the the change with the EU and we, I mean short yeah. term obviously with COVID. So I mean, there's an example. Why shouldn't you know? Makes sense. He's got a variety of jobs. It's dependent on the uh, on the season. So he moves around. It's the same as for example uh, in Sydney. You'll see a lot of uh, pommy buskers on the streets who it's actually worth their while flying down to Australia to busk on the streets of Sydney. The airfare more than pays for the amount of money they get because obviously you can't busk uh, at Covent Garden uh, when it's snowing. So there's lots mm. of you know, and I'm sure act you know, travelling actors, uh, you know, all sorts of professions where people move around the world, and you don't want to stop that sort of thing happening. No, I mean, and, and that's um, I mean, I have friends who work in in um, ski instructing and so on, and they is exactly what you've said. They teach surf, so they, they teach surfboard riding during summer in Sydney. They'll go often do. Uh, ski instructing in Canada during the winter mm. and you don't have those you, you, only in a country which is permanently frozen are you going to get the opportunity to do that as a year-round employment so you do want the itinerants to be to be feasible and you want them to earn a decent wage and to have the chance for a decent uh, lifestyle as well I certainly know from my stories of my friends in ski instructing they they have a pretty enjoyable lifestyle which is only the only the young can enjoy it so good luck to them while they can yeah I'm not quite sure what these people do when they reach 40 or 50, but uh, as you say, good luck to them. So, but we don't want to stop that happening. So, is so is that gets back to Pretty Patel's point? Do we say, well, okay, if you're going to come over here, you've got to earn a certain amount of money, and uh, but but within that, perhaps you do allow. You say, well, okay, we do need some itinerant labour. The certain things that just uh, need to be done seasonally, but again, we're going to we're going to demand that there's a, a minimum salary, so that uh, that is going to uh, encourage automation where it's where it's possible from the uh, from from the owner's point of view. 
and also but not, we still, not undermine the we wages. We still need those fruits picked, and also not undermine the wages of local local workers. And it, it, it's it's re- shifting the orientation towards benefiting the majority of the people rather than the employers. Uh, that's what that under those situations, I'm, I'm quite happy to see a degree of migration, independent of what's going to happen with climate change, of course, which is far more danger, far more uh, serious. Uh, issue for mm. the future, but yeah, um, it, it's it's the fact that it's been turned around in favour of employers, uh, and you know, mainstream economists have done a lot of the championing of that uh, in a world where they oppose minimum wages, which mean, of course, the impact of bringing in the overseas workers is to drive down uh, wages for the local workers, and you then get the level of of racial antagonism coming out of that as well. That, of, of course, you would have also seen in the UK. Uh, it's it's often the when you, what the the local working class who are angry about the the uh, Polish migrants coming in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's it's the it's the employers who benefit because they pay them lower yeah. wages. Well, there's a bit of that going on in Australia as well, of course, isn't there? You know, there was uh, oh yeah, was that that, that that line from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival I had where somebody uh, it was an English comedian saying, you know, uh, racism is uh, is like cricket. I mean, England invented it, but it took Australia to really perfect it. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> I'll pay that one. <laughs> so what do we want then out of all of this? Do we want skilled workers or unskilled workers if you have people coming into the country? In other words, do you want the low-paid jobs done by migrants or do you want the high-paid jobs done by migrants, which then frees up the local population to do all those low-paid jobs? You don't want that, do you? No, but you want, I think you want a degree of, of, of mobility of labour um, for you know, this is the itinerant positions you mentioned, which were a, a, a given, they're going to be there all the time, and you want those people to move around the globe if it was feasible to do so, and take on the itinerant jobs. Uh, you want people uh, with a, a skill set that doesn't exist locally and can't be generated locally uh, to, to come in from overseas. You don't want that undermining local working conditions and local living mm-hmm. conditions. So. Um, but you know, what's actually happened historically um, is, is that migration has been distorted to benefit, to benefit to, rather than letting people get out of you know, parts of the world which have suffered trauma like Europe and the Second World War. It's ended up being uh, let's, let's, let's exploit uh, wage differentials and pay people lousy wages to be cleaners and, uh, and bump up the wages of the finance sector. Right. So again, it gets back to, well, OK, let's set a minimum wage. And then you need a, mm. uh, a transition plan, don't you? So so we, because we can't stop, for example, care workers coming to, to the UK from December uh, and assume that all of a sudden, because uh, I think about a third of the, or, or more of uh, people working in the healthcare industry are from overseas. We can't just stop those people coming in without a plan for them to be replaced by local labour, which obviously means more local training, which, you know, is, is like a 10 year cycle at least, isn't it? Yeah, it's got to have some yeah. sort of transition strategy. And you've, you've, and you've got to have the capacity to train people in areas like, for example, nursing, um, to replace the fact that you're not bringing as many in for, as migrants from overseas. So yeah, yeah. it's. Um, uh, but you know, all these things like education itself has been turned into a profit centre. Um, and so all these things undermine the type of migration you and I'd like to see. So why are countries uh, so naive they don't see what China is doing with its its Belt and Road Initiative, which is uh, pretty much, well, we will invest in a country, but we're also going to send our workers overseas. So that uh, so the, so the benefit of that employment is going right back to China. Mm. 
um, and you know you'd assume at least with migrant workers they're going to pay tax and buy food in the, in your country in the UK but uh, with this Belt and Road Initiative even that's not happening yeah I know so um, but what, what the countries that are receiving that are looking at is the infrastructure that's being constructed and, and arguing they're sort of getting a you know it's like getting IKEA coming out and not just sending you the flat pack but assembling them as well so that's the that's the orientation they have in favour of it but what China is doing is extending the benefits of you know it's successfully exploiting modern monetary theory uh, to keep Chinese workers mm. fully employed all over the and, and extending that influence all over the world all over the yeah, planet absolutely yeah scary yeah. stuff all right very good uh, we'll catch you again very soon uh, we'll sort of talk more actually next next week about the EU uh, and uh, uh, we liked a little bit to, to migration, but you know, now Britain's out of it. Uh, I want to ask the question, are we getting out of it at precisely the wrong time? Could, could this be the EU's day? Uh, I think I know the answer to that already, but we'll have an interesting time <laughs> discussing it. Uh, we'll see you next week. Okay, Matt, bye. So there we are. There was another interesting one. Uh, yes, and that's it. I'm Phil Dobby, back again with Steve Keen for another one next week. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.